Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked about many different ways to get into the pathology field, depending on your interests. And while some of them require advanced degrees, that doesn't always mean medical school. My guest today is Kimberly Fiak. Kimberly has a master's degree in pathology, and she's currently working on a PhD in pathology. Today, we're going to talk about how she got into this field, her interest in neuropathology, and some of the research that she's done in this area, and her work in brain banking. All right, here's Kimberly Fiak. I kind of wanted to start with the way we kind of came in contact with each other, which was through Twitter. Somebody brought up the topic of what is the difference between a pathologist and a someone with a PhD in pathology. And I, and I think someone said kind of, you know, well, one's a medical doctor and one isn't. And since you're currently studying to be to get your PhD in pathology, I thought this would be a good place to start. So, you know, I think there's more to it than just one's a medical doctor and one isn't. So let's kind of talk about that. Can we kind of go through what what is a the, the PhD in pathology? And then we'll get, kind of get into how is it similar and different from a pathologist? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my PhD is going to be in experimental pathology, which I like to tell people is just a fancy way to say that we use different types of experimental techniques to study disease. Um, so that's kind of my interest has always been into research and not so much into treatment or medicine. And that's kind of why I chose the PhD route rather than an MD route. Okay. That makes sense. You know, the way I was kind of thinking of it was what, what you're doing, like you said, is experimental pathology. And then I guess your sort of hospital-based pathology is kind of applied pathology. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. So the way that I kind of describe it to people is that pathologists, are MDs and they are involved in the clinical care of patients. So they're involved in the actual diagnosis of disease. I am not involved in that. Instead, I'm interested in why diseases manifest and kind of how the consequences of those diseases can affect, particularly in my area of interest, the brain. So it's less diagnosis focused and more um, answering questions about why things are happening. But I think that the work that you do it kind of informs clinical pathology, doesn't it? Like, it, it, like it's it's used to make better diagnoses. Does, does that make oh, sense? Yeah, definitely. It really is. And they kind of go hand in hand. So, for example, uh -huh. my boss is a MD, a medical doctor. So he's a practicing neuropathologist, but he also runs a research lab. And so the research that we do kind of ties into, you know, what he sees clinically and, and the diagnoses that he makes. And then we can answer questions once he's seen that, that can better inform, you know, treatment options for people with different diseases. So they definitely go hand in hand. From what I read about you from a very young age, you decided you were going to be a scientist and specifically a scientist and not a doctor. And I'm curious, how, how did you come to this sort of decision or, or realization? Yeah. So I think a lot of people who want to become doctors at young ages have a very uh, unique experience. Like they're either in a hospital or they have a family member or they have some experience with a doctor that kind of inspires them. 
Mm-hmm. And I had kind of a different approach to that experience. So my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was about five years old. And rather than wanting to be a doctor that treats her, I was like, I'm going to cure cancer. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I just, I was like, that's it. You know, I'm going to cure it. No big deal. It can't be that hard. And of course, you know, I'm a five-year-old. So obviously there's much more to it than that. But that was really my approach to was that that was what I was interested in. I was interested in finding a cure. Now, then as you went along, as you got a little bit older, uh, you know, going into school and things, did that, you know, you were still interested in science. Did that uh, interest grow into other areas of science or did you always have like the one goal in mind? Yeah, it definitely changed. So originally I was interested in being a chemist, which was kind of funny because I had no idea what chemistry even was, but that's kind of where I started. Um, And as I went through high school, I actually loved my chemistry classes. My AP chemistry teacher was one of my major supporters and inspirations for pursuing science as a career. So that was kind of where I started. And then I started applying to colleges and the undergrad university I happened to go to had a neuroscience major. And I knew nothing about the brain, but I was like, brains are kind of cool, I guess. And there must be a lot to know about that. So I'm in a major in neuroscience. And I went to that university and majored in neuroscience and, and never really looked back. Okay, wait, you, you majored in neuroscience without really knowing much about it? Yes, I know that sounds really crazy, um, <laughs> but that was, I don't know, it just sounded cool. Um, all the other colleges I applied to, I applied as a chemistry major, and this uh-huh. one I applied to as a neuroscience major. Now, as you were going along, did you ever um, kind of question that decision? No, not really. Um, my first the summer before I started my freshman year of college, I had the honor of doing an internship, a 10-week internship in a chronic pain lab. And I thought that work was really interesting. And then I got a neuropathology internship and I fell in love with the work that I was doing. And so it just always seemed to fit. And I never really questioned it after that. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about the neuropathology internship. So first of all, was this kind of your first experience with the field of pathology? Yes, it was. Um, I got to work in a lab that ran a brain and body donation program. So not only did I get to do the research side, I also got to experience some of the brain banking that led me to my interest in brain banking now. Okay, yeah. And we're going to talk about your work in that uh, a little bit later on. You studied psychology as well. Is that right? Yes, I did. Okay. Now, I'm curious about that because psychology and, and neuropathology, they're kind of you know, you're studying the brain, but it's two different aspects of it. Is that like, do you, do you feel like those two areas are, are kind of linked? Um, Not really. So I did an internship in neuropsychology as well, because there was a, for a while I was interested in kind of bridging those two areas, but then I realized that it wasn't really for me. And I was more interested in the physical manif- manifestations of disease rather than psychologically how they manifested. Um, so it doesn't really impact my work so much nowadays, but I think a lot of my interest in psychology stemmed from dealing with my own mental illness and familial mental illness. And mm-hmm. so just learning more about that so that I could kind of have different tools to look at how I struggled with mental illness really, I think is what kind of led me to majoring in that. Now, a lot of the people that I've talked to that work in in and kind of around the field of pathology, they've got kind of outside uh, 
creative pursuit. And it's been probably mo- most of the people that I've had on the podcast. So as you're, as you're in college and you're going along, did you have any kind of creative, uh, like what were your sort of, I guess, outside hobbies? Yeah. So I was in a sorority in college. And as part of that, I did a lot of volunteer work. So that's one of my huge passions. Um, and with that, I'm really interested in creative writing. So I actually took some creative writing classes in college and I've always just really had an interest in writing. That's kind of my outlet and the way that I um, express how I'm feeling. So a lot of that stems from when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that was my way of kind of connecting how I was feeling for other people who didn't experience it the same way that I did. They could understand what I was going through. And now that I'm um, kind of in pathology and do a lot of work with neuropathology, I find that it's a really good outlet to kind of express my thoughts and feelings, not only about how, you know, incredible the things that we see under the microscope are, but also how appreciative and grateful I am for the opportunity that we get to study them because people are so willing to donate to science and to advanced research. So I kind of use it as a way to show appreciation and gratitude and also express and excite other people uh, in my field. So were you mostly writing about like, like your own experiences or were was this like fiction writing or what, what kind of stuff did you write? Yeah. So I've done all sorts of things. So I've written um, creative pieces that were just about, you know, my experience and kind of the way that I view situations. And then I've also written like completely, fiction pieces that have nothing to do with anything I've ever experienced before, just a thought that came into my head and and kind of took it from there. So one of the things that I wrote um, a piece in college for my creative writing class was about a person um, with multiple personalities and kind of how they were interacting and conversing with those personalities, but how it was being viewed from the outside. So kind of the dual perspective there. Um, And that kind of tied into the psychology classes that I was taking. So kind of captured everything there. Taking your experiences from from writing, do you feel like you can apply any of that to the work that you're doing now? I mean, you've you've written some papers and, you know, part of that is kind of telling a story. Do you you think this, the skills that you learned in practicing writing are, are things you can apply now? Oh, definitely. There's a lot of creative finesse to describing research to audiences that are outside of your field. And yeah. so I think those creative skills really help me to come up with better ways of explaining things that are going to like connect and stick rather than just the basic description. Uh, I think part of the reason I started doing science communication on Instagram was because I felt like a lot of the pathology accounts that I followed gave very clinical descriptions of pathology. And even though I'm in the field, I had a really hard time reading and interpreting them. So I wanted to use that kind of those creative skills that I had to make pathology accessible so people could understand what disease looks like and why it matters in a simple way. Um, I think a lot of people who do disease research don't really know a lot about pathology. So a lot of people who study like Alzheimer's disease, for example, they know that there's tangles and they know there's plaques and those things are important and they know on a molecular level, maybe some things about that, but they don't really know what those look like or how to, you know, diagnose Alzheimer's disease when you're looking at sections. So I really wanted to use those creative writing skills to make things accessible so people could have a better understanding of not only my field, but also 
why this is important and why it matters and why my research is really making a difference. I'm curious, why was this important to you to, you know, have the, sort of the general public understand your field better? Was was it to maybe inspire people to to look at the field for themselves or was it something else? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. So I think it's kind of twofold. The first part is exactly what you said. So to inspire people to take an interest in my field. I got really lucky that I happened to get an internship in neuropathology without really looking for the field. And it was the perfect home for me. And I've um, developed so much in my career because of that opportunity that most people wouldn't have because they don't know about pathology. But the other part of it was really because pathologists are really the unsung heroes. And I think we're seeing this a lot with COVID. Um, People don't know what pathology is or what pathologists do. And so they don't realize how integral they are in patient care. And that is something that, despite not being a doctor, really bothered me. I want people to recognize how important they are and how vital and that they spend countless hours, you know, thinking and obsessing and checking, you know, biopsies and diagnoses and things like that to make sure that patients are getting the right treatment for them. And nobody ever thanks them because they don't know to do that. So that was really also what I wanted to highlight with my account was that pathology is so important in patient care, but patients don't know about pathology. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been a recurring theme that I've heard many times. You know, everybody's concerned that we're, we're behind the scenes. Generally the patients don't get to see us, so they don't know about us. You're, you're absolutely right about that. You did your neuropathology internship. Did you ever either during that time or afterwards, consider other areas of pathology or was it just neuropath from the beginning? It was always neuropath from the beginning. Um, When I was looking at graduate schools, I did have the opportunity to talk to pathologists in other areas and learn a little bit about that. But my interest was always really in brain disease. So I never really strayed from that. You know, you mentioned some volunteering a a little bit earlier. What, What kind of volunteering did you do? Yeah, so I did a lot of things like Habitat for Humanity was a big one. Um, each year for spring break, I went on what was called Alternative Spring Break, which is essentially a week-long volunteering program. Um, and I did it three out of the four years of college. The first year I got sick, so I couldn't go on my trip. But I went the other three years, and we did various things. I did um, Habitat for Humanity work after some of the devastating weather that had hit Beaumont, Texas. Um, I worked at a camp for individuals with disabilities so that they could have a kind of like a summer camp experience. Um, so I did things like that. And then recently, uh, once I started graduate school, I became a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate. This is actually uh, really close to my heart because my sorority's national philanthropy is CASA. And as a CASA, essentially what we do is we advocate um, on behalf of abused and neglected children have entered the foster care system. So I work with families um, to kind of help get them back on track so that they can be reunified with their children and also advocating for the needs of children, making sure that their voices are heard by the court system in what they want out of their life. Um, so that's kind of the different things that I've done. And I'm really, really happy with how I've had the opportunity to continue doing that volunteer work, even while being in grad school, because it's such an important part of who I am. Like, how do you find the time for, for that? I mean, while working on a PhD, you're still doing all this other volunteering work. That's, that's impressive. 
you know, I've always been really busy and it's kind of the way that I cope with, with stress in my life is that I, I have lots of different outlets. Um, so I do a lot at work and I'm very busy at work and I do a lot with the brain bank and I'm very busy with that. And then when I need uh, ways to cope with that stress, I put it into work that I can help other people. So I volunteer, um, I you know spend time with my family and things like that. So work-life balance is key and I'm not always great at it, but I certainly do my best. Now you earned your master's degree during the pandemic, right? Yes. Okay. Now I'm curious about that because I've talked to people that, that have told me the way that education kind of had, had to adapt uh, to the pandemic with, with, you know, virtual learning and, and things like that. Did, did you have like a drastic change in the things you had to do throughout your master's program with, because of the pandemic? So the first semester of that, we went virtual. I was actually taking a microscopy class. That was the last class I needed for my master's degree. So obviously I couldn't do that from home. Uh, I learned a lot about like imaging techniques. So like post image, like things that you could do to clean up images and stuff like that. But that was really a big drastic change because those skills were things that I was looking forward to, to bring into my PhD. And I obviously couldn't do that, but I was actually done with all of the data collection for my master's thesis and was getting ready to write it anyways. So being virtual and staying at home didn't impact me that much because I wasn't doing experiments anyways. I was already about to start the process of writing my thesis. As far as the microscopy, did you get involved with like digital digital pathology because it was virtual? No, it was more just like uh, images for like publications, like how I could clean up images, like get rid of background and make 3D models of my cell lines and things like that. So it wasn't really pathology focused. It was more just about my research. Oh, I got you. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your research. Now you, you study tau protein, which, yes. um, all right, I'm going to admit, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I have read your papers. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep up with you here. Now, when most people think of tau, they think of, you know, the neurodegenerative disorders, uh, you know, dementia, CTE, that kind of thing. Well, first, all right, can, can we can we talk about those things? Like, what what is the role of tau in neurodegenerative disorders? Yeah, so well, when it comes to tau, there's kind of a collective group of diseases, which we call tauopathies. And there are primary tauopathies, which is where tau is essentially the main player, the main driver of disease. And that's going to be things like PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy, CBD, cortical basal degeneration, PICS disease, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, those kinds of players. And there's a couple others that are caused by gene mutations that we won't get into. But those are like tau is your main focus. Okay. And then we have secondary tauopathies, which is most notably Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it's interesting because Alzheimer's disease gets all the publicity, but it's actually uh, a secondary tauopathy. So tau is not necessarily the only or... Um, critical player in that disease, but it's also beta amyloid, which I know is really big okay. in the news right now because of the new drug. So beta amyloid is also a critical player. And then you have tau, which is kind of a secondary player in that disease. Now, uh, how did you, how did you get interested in studying tau? So the neuropathology internship that I did in college was also in a lab that looked at neurodegenerative disease, particularly Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. 
So I kind of had an interest in it from that, but I applied for a pathology master's program because I felt that my interest in disease was stronger than my interest in the brain. Like I was interested in studying diseases in the brain, but I cared more about learning about disease and mechanisms and processes. And when I chose the University of Iowa, at the time, there was really only one lab that studies neuropathology, which is the lab I work in. Um, and we do focus a lot on neurodevelopment, which I knew nothing about, so I was worried about that, but I actually grew to really love the research. So part of it was a little bit of prior experience, but most of it was just that happened to be the lab I chose. The work that you did for your master's and I think still for your PhD, you're working on kind of the role of tau as it, as it applies to neurodevelopment, right? Yeah. So tau actually has a lot of normal functions, but we don't really know what those normal functions are. So we know uh, tau is a microtubule associated protein. So it's responsible for helping stabilize axons via interactions with microtubules. And that's really important in development for, you know, communication between neurons, improved um, processing, which helps, you know, with learning when you're really young. Um, it also has some roles in like excitotoxicity and potentially in like seizure activity, epilepsy, um, and glutamatergic signaling, but it's not super well understood. And I like to tell people this analogy, which is kind of a terrible one, but if you think about like a toaster, for example, of course, we all know how a toaster works, but if you didn't know how a toaster works and someone asked you to fix a broken toaster, you wouldn't be able to do it because you wouldn't know how it functions normally. And that's kind of the same thing that we have going on with tau. So everybody's studying it in a disease context, but we don't really know how it functions normally. So we can't really fix it in disease if we don't know what it does normally. Okay, that makes sense. I actually I like that analogy. That's very uh, easy to understand. Thanks. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest Kimberly Fiak. We'll be right back. Labvine is designed to integrate into the daily routine of any laboratory stakeholder and support you and your team holistically. Here are some of the features of Labvine. You can complete a skills assessment to identify your gaps and needs and be directed to resources to build those much needed competencies. You can head over to VineStream and listen to podcasts and webinars, including this podcast. If you have problems and need mentorship in your lab but lack the in-house expertise, you can head over to the ConfLab and connect with an expert that has the solution for you. And when you have a few extra minutes, check out Vine News to stay informed on the latest international trends in lab medicine. You can follow the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine and check out these features and more. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to you, Kimberly Fiak on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, one of the things in reading, I, I think I was reading your, your master's paper, you were talking about stem cell derived organoids yeah, and how, how you created those and what you were doing with those. Can you, can you talk about that? First of all, what are, what are these organoids and how do you, how did you develop them? This is kind of a newer technology or a newer model system that people have started using. So stem cells are a really cool cell because they essentially have pluripotency or the ability to turn into all other cell types in the body. And we can take that property and use it to our advantage to turn these stem cells 
into neurons, just like the ones in the brain. And then we can use that as a model for studying all different types of disease. And you can use that to study different treatments on disease in a real human system uh, compared to like an animal model where the pathology process is not the same. So they have that really cool property, but they also have the ability to turn into organoids, which are essentially miniature brains. Um, and we found through the work of my master's thesis that they organize in the same way that a fetal brain does. So they have a more mature exterior, a more immature interior, as well as rosette structures, which are essentially these ring-shaped areas in the organoid that are organized in the same fashion, where they're more mature on the outside and more immature on the inside. And we could use that to look at different populations of cells and determine when tau expression was beginning in this model system. And that could kind of drive future research for us so that we knew if we're looking at particular points in development, what we needed to look for in our model system to be actually recapitulating that same uh, point in human development. So it sounds like the advantage to using these uh, stem cell organoids is that you can you can make them essentially as you need them. So you have more uh, availability. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah. So it depends on how essentially old you need them to be. So um, a lot of people use them in like disease research and they want them to mimic more like adult brains and they keep those in culture for 300, 400, 500 days. For us with, with fetal development, what's great about them is you can keep them in culture maybe 35, 50 days. So that's a much shorter amount of time. And they really, they really match the way that an actual fetal brain would be in second trimester. Um, rather than if you have like a, a mouse brain, for example, their developmental span is much different than ours as a human brain because it's much more rapid. And so you're not going to necessarily catch the same time point that you would with these organoids that are really, they're human. They're, they come from human stem cells. And uh -huh. so it doesn't get much, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, just reading about that, I, I found that very interesting. I'd, I'd never heard of this technology before. It sounds like uh, it could be very useful in a lot of different areas. Yeah, the cool thing about them, too, is that they can actually make organoids of other organs. So I know that they're doing these now um, with heart, with muscle, and I know I've seen some labs that are actually finding ways to connect brain and muscle organoids to make the muscle twitch. Um, so they're doing really, really cool things that are mirroring things that we would see in our own body. And so you're, you're getting the most advanced model of really what we're interested in in humans. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's even more impressive. I didn't, I didn't know that. Okay. As far as your, your PhD work now, are you building off of your kind of findings from your master's thesis or is it sort of a different direction? I'm just taking a different direction. So I focused a lot on development for my uh, master's thesis, which was great because I worked on a project that I could really wrap up in the two-year time span. But now okay. that I have more time with my PhD, I'm doing a bit of more of a heavy focus on disease, particularly with those primary cowopathies. Um, they're not as well researched as something like Alzheimer's disease. So I'm kind of interested in that. And I actually have a very personal interest in prion diseases. I learned about them as an undergrad and just find them so fascinating. So my PhD thesis is going to kind of look at the prion-like properties of tau as well as other proteins that are involved in neurodegenerative disease. 
those prion diseases are <laughs> terrifying. Some of them. I know. That's why I think, and it's so fascinating too, because, you know, if other proteins behave in similar ways, then, you know, we have a much bigger problem than we think we do. So if we can, you know, target and treat proteins that act in a similar manner, that could potentially open up a therapeutic option for prion disease where there really is none. There's no, there's no choice right now. Death is the only option with prion disease. So I think that it's really interesting research to be able to kind of merge those things and hopefully you can help provide a treatment option for multiple diseases. Okay, wait, wait a minute. Let me let me make sure I understand this. So you're studying the properties of tau that are similar to prions, in in the hopes that you can use that to help find treatments for prion diseases. Is that is that right? Yeah. So ideally, everybody wants to okay. find treatments. Um, I don't right. know if that will actually happen, but yeah. So there are properties. It's been um, researched and, and shown that there are properties of tau, particularly with propagation. Um, and toxicity that are similar to the ways that prions propagate and become neurotoxic. And this is also true for things like alpha-synuclein, which is, um, as we know, the major player in Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. So there are other proteins that function in a similar way to prions. So if you can figure out the mechanism by which they're doing this, that could possibly open up a therapeutic avenue for more than just a, a tau-focused tauopathy. Um, it could potentially have therapeutic benefits for things like um, alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's or hopefully prion diseases as well. Okay. Okay. I see. Got it. All right. All right. Now you, you mentioned earlier the Neurobank. Uh, so this is called the Iowa Neurobank Core. Yeah. All right. Now I want to talk about this for a bit. First of all, what is this? And then what is your role there? Yeah, so the Iowa Neurobank Core is essentially a core facility that is a brain tissue repository and stem cell repository. So I'm the graduate research assistant. I do a lot of work helping with the processing of donated brains, as well as working on the fibroblast cultures, which we can use to make um, iPSCs, so induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, which are really cool because if you take um, fibroblasts from like an Alzheimer's brain or a Parkinson's patient or something like that, you can develop iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells that have the same genetic mutations. And you can use that to study um, genetics in terms of different diseases. But essentially what my role is, is to help process tissue. Um, I'm learning also on how to consent patients for donation. And I work a lot on that outreach and education of what we do. Okay, I understand. Now, when you say processing, is this like the uh, tissue processing like you would see in a, in a normal histology lab? Yeah, so essentially we do, I work doing all the cutting, all the imaging, sectioning, and then um, I also like to review the slides when they come back, and I work with my PI, who's a neuropathologist, on the actual diagnosis. With the caveat, of course, that I don't make any diagnoses. I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm really interested in kind of that clinical presentation mixed with what we see under the microscope. So I do like to look at the slides and kind of see the case from the start, the growth pathology all the way through to the histology. Yeah, that's important to to see the entire process from beginning to end. Uh, I think it really makes a difference. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think I always surprise myself because I'll look at gross pathology and I'll be like, oh, there's a lot of atrophy here. 
but the hippocampi look normal in this brain that's supposedly AD. I'm not convinced of this diagnosis. And then I'll look at the histology and I'll see that there's tangles everywhere and there's tons of beta amyloid deposition. And then I'm like, okay, this tells a very different story than the gross pathology. So I really like to see it from start to finish because you can surprise yourself um, with how different the, the two situations seem to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You, you mentioned earlier your uh, Instagram account, which is called The Path PhD. All right, and, you, and how you use it to promote pathology uh, and, and STEM in general. So let's talk about this for a bit. For, first of all, when did you start this account on Instagram? I actually started it almost a year ago. So in, I think, beginning of September will be one year. And we, are, we already kind of went through sort of why you started it, just to kind of shed light on pathology and have sort of the general public give them an idea of what the field is like. And in going through your account, there's a lot of like sort of recurring uh, features or, or themes that you have. And one of, them, one of them that I wanted to talk about, it's, it's called Let's Talk Pathology. And you have sort of a different topic every time, although they're all, you know, kind of neuropathology related. How do you, how do you come up with the topics for this? So in the beginning, they were all topics that I just happened to be really familiar with because of my disease research. Um, and as I kind of went through the, the more common ones like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, so on and so forth, I went to my PI and said, I'm really interested in teaching people about pathology can you help me figure out different diseases that I can talk about and the pathologic features that you would look at in diagnosis? And so a lot of the topics that I come up with actually come up from my PI who will have a case that he'll find really interesting and we'll talk about it or um, he'll remember something that he learned when he was in med school and we'll find examples of that and do it that way. So I try to cover different types of pathology, although, as you pointed out, I've been really bad about that, and they're mostly neurofocused, because that's what I'm interested in. But I try to just have different examples of lots of different things that could be seen, from the more common things like tumors to things that might be a bit more rare, so that there's kind of a, something for everyone. Sure. So your your PI, he's, he's very supportive of this project that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. He doesn't know anything about social media, but has been behind me from day one helping. He reviews all of my content to make sure that it is actually accurate to um, the diagnosis. He helps with me when I'm trying to find images. Um, we talk through a lot of my different ideas and, and ways that I could present them that would be um, engaging as well as helping me film videos. Um, to make educational content about uh, brain banking and stuff. So he's been an amazing support system. I, I could not ask for a better PI. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's got, got to be really helpful. Um, and you've done a couple of features on like neuroanatomy, uh, which are which are really cool because you show kind of fresh brain and then fixed brain and sort of what the difference in, in what they look like. And there was another thing that I saw you went through sort of the different careers in pathology. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight that, you know, uh, being a pathologist is a really awesome career choice, but it's not the only option in pathology. Uh, most people did not know in the pathology field that getting a PhD in pathology was an option. Um, and a lot of people I talk to don't know uh, what a pathologist assistant or a PA is. So I really wanted to highlight that if you're interested in disease, there's more than one career path 
that you can look at. So if medical school isn't an option for you, you can look at research. You can look at being a pathologist assistant. Um, you can look at running a core facility. There's lots of different um, areas that you can get involved in. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you know, for me personally, I appreciate that you included pathologist assistants in there because just like the rest of pathology, we feel like we don't get enough attention. Oh, absolutely. You know, what's interesting is I almost became a pathologist assistant. Um, when I really? was, yes, as I was getting ready to apply for grad schools out of undergrad, I looked at a PA programs and going to PA school and I almost did it, but I decided that I really wanted to focus on the research component. Um, and I talked to a couple of PAs and they said that they didn't get as much of an opportunity to do research as they wanted to. And so that's why I chose to do um, a graduate degree instead. But who knows, maybe someday I'll go back because I have so much respect for PAs and the things that they get to see and do. And they are just such an amazing part of the pathology team. And I love getting to talk to them because I learned so much from them. Oh, that's great. I, I, I love hearing that. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. Uh, at least right now, a lot of us are not involved in research that much, but I think it, it feels like it's gradually changing a little bit, especially in areas like, like biobanking. There, there seems to be more PAs involved in that uh, in recent years. Yeah, definitely. One more topic I want to talk about, and you've written about this a little bit as well, and I think you've covered it on your Instagram also, and and, and then that's burnout. And this is something that I think we hear about all the time these days, you know, in, in not only in healthcare and academia and pretty much everywhere. So it's something that it's probably relatable to just about everyone. For you, what, why do you think it's important to acknowledge burnout and, and that it's so prevalent? I think for me, part of the um, problem is that when programs, particularly PhD programs, are trying to recruit students, they want to put their best foot forward. And they want to tell you about all the great things about being a PhD student and all the things you're going to learn and how much fun you're going to have. And all those things are great too, but I think it's really important to keep it real and that it's not always a great time doing your PhD. It is stressful. And, you know, you can be really, really excited about your research and then you get to a point where you're no longer excited. And a lot of people think that that's a sign that they need to drop out. And I don't want people to misinterpret that. So I wanted to talk about burnout because it happens to basically everyone. Um, and it'll happen at some point in your PhD. And it's okay if it does. It doesn't mean you failed as a scientist. It doesn't mean you need to quit. It just means that you need to take a step back. You need to reevaluate. Um, if that means you need to take an actual break in, in your PhD, then so be it. If that means you just need to take more of a, a lower workload, then that can be it too. But I think it's really important to normalize that you are going to have bad days in a PhD and, and any career, you're going to have bad days and you're going to have bad times. Um, but you don't let that deter you from pursuing this graduate degree because there are some really, really great times and you make discoveries and write papers and that's a feeling like no other, but you know, normalizing that this is going to happen to you and it's okay if it does, it doesn't mean you failed is really, really important to me. Yeah. There's such a, a mindset, I guess, that, you know, just this go, go, go all the time thing that I think has been overdone. And yeah, burnout is something that just about everybody experiences. And like you said, you, we have to normalize that it is okay. Yeah. And I think especially with the pandemic, people are feeling it a lot 
more than they're yeah. probably used to. And I don't think people know what to do with that feeling. And it's a very scary feeling, especially if you feel like you're the only one feeling that way. I think when, like a year ago, when a lot of people started their PhDs, um, they all kind of experienced this burnout at the same time. And I was like, oh, everything's fine. And then everybody else, you know, kind of got better and moved on. And then all of a sudden it was like, now I'm experiencing this burnout. And I felt like nobody around me was experiencing it. Everybody else was fine. And so I wanted to talk about it because I was like, I can't be the only one feeling this way, but you know, social media gives us a very warped sense of what's going on with other people. So I felt like by talking about it, I was getting, you know, other people to speak up that they were feeling it too. And then I wasn't feeling so alone. Okay. Yeah. And talking about it definitely is, I think it's very helpful. Are there other things you can think of that might be helpful to, to do to, to uh, deal with burnout? I think for me, my biggest thing was talking to my support system. So a lot of people are really, really scared, and I get it, to talk to their PI when they're feeling this way because they don't want to be seen as a failure, um, especially because a lot of the, the symptoms that come with burnout are like lack of motivation or, you know, oh, sure. un, like un, like not being productive. And I think those are really scary things to have to talk to your boss about. So for me, going to my boss and saying, hey, I don't want to come to work anymore, and that's a new feeling for me, and I don't like my project anymore. And that's a new feeling for me. Like we need to talk about this and we need to work through it and figure out ways that we can, you know, get me re-excited about science was, was really critical for me because I couldn't do it alone. I needed him on my side and, and talking to my husband about it. We just recently got married in May and we bought a house oh, wow. and we moved. Yeah. So we went through all these really big life changes. And then all of a sudden I was extremely depressed and burnt out. And so I had to talk to him and I was like, I know we have all these happy things going on in our life, but this is how I'm feeling. And I need you to know that so that I don't feel so alone and I don't feel so guilty about not being happy right now. And so, you know, utilizing my support system was really critical for me. And then taking a step back, I really took a step back from work. Um, I didn't really do as much as I normally would. I didn't really do any outreach. I didn't put a lot of my volunteering on hold and really just took a step back from everything so that I could get myself in the right, right mindset. And I, you know, upped my therapy visits, which, you know, I know is a privilege and not everybody can do that. But those are kind of the things that I did to help me get back in the mindset. And it took a long time. I started feeling this way in, you know, April, May of this year. And now it's August and I'm just starting to get back to it. So that was another really important thing for me to highlight on Instagram is that it's okay if it takes time. You know, yeah. you don't have to bounce right back in a week or two weeks just because you had a vacation and you were off of work. Like, it's okay if it takes you months to get back to where you were. Like, there's no time limit to how long you can feel burnt out. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, that's going to be different for, for each individual person. Yes, exactly. And in what you do in that time off, you know, if you're feeling burnt out, but you're still, you know, doing all of these extra things in your, your personal life and you're still working, you know, maybe at 50% capacity, like that could make you take you longer to get back to feeling like yourself than if you, you know, take a complete step back from everything. So it really depends, you know, on also how you take that time away. Yeah, those are some good uh, good good ideas there. I, I I think a lot of things that that people can kind of take away and maybe apply to their own situation. Okay, now you're so you're currently in uh, working on your PhD. 
And you mentioned, you know, you recently got married, bought a house. Are there any other uh, kind of side projects or uh, something you'd, you'd like to mention that, you, that you're up to that uh, before we wrap up? Yeah. So I mentioned that I really love outreach and I had the opportunity as an undergrad to hold a human brain for the first time. And it really changed my life. And so I'm working with our Iowa Neurobank Corps to create outreach programs for kids, particularly in underserved areas in my community, where we can go and bring them um, different brains from different animal species as well as a human brain so that they can get exposure to neuroscience um, way earlier than I did and hopefully kind of spark that same interest in pathology that I had. So I'm really excited about that and I'm hoping to get some of those programs up and running this fall when things return to being in person. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's great. There's so much, there's such a need for getting, you know, young kids interested in these fields, especially like you mentioned in underserved areas. So that's great. I love that. Thank you. And I think we have an incredible opportunity, like I said, and, and gift with these brain donations that we get for our Iowa Bank Corps. Um, and so I think it's really important to use those resources as educational tools to teach kids. We're so lucky and thankful that our donors trusted us to use um, their brains to help advance research, but also really to advance education and to teach kids um, about this field in neuroscience to hopefully inspire more researchers to help, you know, cure these diseases. So I think that's a really great opportunity that we're really fortunate to have that not a lot of, lot of other labs have um, access to. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Absolutely agree. It's a great project. All right, Kimberly, this has been really interesting. I actually, I, I really learned a lot from you. So it was, it was great talking to you. So uh, Kimberly Fiak, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Big thanks to Kimberly Fiak. Next week, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ivana Kolova, who is a pathologist in Finland. Here's a short preview of that conversation, and then I'll be back with some final comments about this episode. As you're going through medical school, what was your first exposure to pathology? I studied in my hometown and the pathology course was during the whole third grade and Professor Steiner's lectures of pathology were best ever lectures I heard too because it was not just lecturing all about diseases. He also showed us lots of pictures and also some sort of museum samples and also some, like you know, from daily routine, we could see the samples. So it was so interesting. And I was really taught by this subject. And our microscopy courses were laid by, by Professor Špaček and his brilliant neuropathologist now retired. And every week we could attend autopsy room within our course. and. There were clinicians present, so we could follow like what was the clinical story and what was found. And there was the discussion among uh, doctors, professors. So I was really touched and decided, yeah, that is something what I would like to do. And also as pathologist, you have a very good opportunity to do science research. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Kimberly. There were a lot of interesting topics in this one, particularly the stem cell derived organoids, which 
we talked about actually after we stopped recording, we talked about that for a while and some of the implications and things that that could potentially be used for. And then there's also uh, what she said about how prions and tau protein behave in similar ways sometimes. And of course, the brain banking aspect is very interesting to me. And I really want to point out how you could hear how she loves what she's doing. She's excited about the work that she's doing. And that's certainly very common among those of us in pathology. I mean, we love the work that we do. I don't think there's a whole lot of other fields that can say that. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. I I highly recommend you check out her Instagram page. It's really very interesting. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Or you can just go to peopleofpathology.com and all the links are right there. I did want to mention I'll be joining Lona Small on her Lab OPEX Live series on September 23rd. That's going to be at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. You might remember Lona from episode 60 of this podcast, and she asked me to join her on her series, which is on LinkedIn, and I believe it's also on Facebook and YouTube as well. So that would be on September 23rd. We're going to be talking about the power of making and cultivating professional relationships. And this will also be recorded, so if you can't catch it live, you can watch it at any time. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link to Health Podcast Network in the show notes if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.